Welcome to the Broken Patriarch Podcast, episode 225. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Back with me is my semi-permanent, almost permanent co-host, Jay Pestricelli, CEO of Zega Financial. How you doing, Jay? Uh, good, Derek. Glad to be back. Thank you for giving me a week or two off. I really appreciated the time and for clarity. Yeah, no, it was good. I don't even know what that means. I, I don't know either, but <laughs> yeah, Mike and, Mike and I covered some good ground last week as well. We International has really surprised. But let me save that because I want to bring that back. Jay, this week, your buddy and mine, Jay Powell, they didn't do anything, but they talked really tough. Jay Powell came out and said, we're going to raise rates two more times and we're not going to lower and we still need to raise rates and we're going to do it, but we're not doing anything now. We're not doing anything. Talking tough, not doing anything, Jay. Thoughts? I, I mean, it's it's like everyone said this was what a, a hawkish pause compared to last time that it was a dovish raise. Like, what is this? Like, what, what are we like making up all this? They didn't raise. Like, but I get why they have to talk. Like, their tools are we can talk about doing something and then we could do something. That's it. That's that's it. They could you know change rates or they could talk about changing rates. And so I, you know, look, they stopped. I feel like. Inertia is a real thing in the market, right? Trends and inertia in the markets matter. And it would have to be pretty bad news for them to start up again. I do think they're probably, they've told us, don't expect a cut anytime soon. Uh, The market for a long time didn't believe them. I think the market is starting to believe them, but that they won't cut. But turning around and raising again once you've stopped Eh, I don't know. Like what why did what made them pause this time? Why? Because the market thought that was most likely. Why did they pause? I don't know. What would make them start again? I don't know. So it seemed it's a lot of rhetoric. I think you have to look at what their action was. The basic gist is they paused. The 10 months in a row of rate raises has now stopped, or 10 meetings in a row of rate raises has stopped. That's it. That's what you take away from it. I'm not sure they weren't afraid of causing more problems in the banking sector. It's, I have no, I haven't looked at it. I, it just, the, the first thing that came to my mind. The other thing that came to my, my mind, Jay, was that their dot plots and what they say will happen never happens. They're never right. Just go back and pull up the dot plots from 2018 when they said, oh yeah, rates are going to be up to three and a half percent, five percent. No, it never happened. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to them, you know, last time, right, you should have expected more raises. But then over the last week, week and a half, you know, leading into the meeting, something changed. It was like it was it was like a week and a half. And then they just decided not to. So they're making I'm I'm glad they kind of make decisions with current data and aren't whatever. I don't know what they're using, but because uh, inflation's not gone. Right. So I don't know what they're why they stopped. But you're right, Derek. Like they're they they're no better at predicting what's going to happen than any other investor, right? Now, I do think there's been a lot of talk lately around uh, the Fed may have successfully negotiated and navigated a soft landing. I, you know, maybe, um, but I don't think they had really all that much to do with it anyway. I think they caused a lot of turmoil in the first place, and it hasn't really impacted. Uh, I think the inflation is just kind of fixing itself, right? Like it will over time. Getting it from 4% down to 2%, that'll be the hard job. So I don't know. You know, I'm with you, Derek. Like, they're not going to be great at predicting it. 
and uh, predicting the, the you know what they're they're going to do themselves. Uh, so I think they follow a lot of what the market pushes them to do. And the market was telling the telling the world they weren't going to raise, and they didn't raise. I don't know. Is it the tail wagging the dog? It's just so unclear. Actually, Derek, it's so unclear that I'm not sure it matters anymore. You want to comment on that? Well, internally, we were sort of all talking, and I think we were going around the room, and people are saying what they think CPI would do. And I said, none of this even matters. It doesn't matter. It's, it's insignificant at this point because the market's moved on. Remember, I always say, Greece's debt to GDP was out of control. It was the biggest problem in the world. It's higher than it was 14 years ago, but nobody talks about that. I think this was all code. The reason why they, they're sitting there and they're saying all this is Jay Powell is looking into the camera and telling everybody, if you start buying useless uh, crypto coins, go out and buy seven condos, you know, buy, sell your house to buy 150% of game stock. If you start messing around and speculating too much, we'll do it. We'll do it, market. We'll come back in and raise rates and crush all your dreams. I think that's what they were saying by this tough talk. Maybe not. I don't know. Crush all your dreams. Woo. All right. If that's what you think they were saying. I don't, I mean, he was, he was scolding the market a little bit, but yet he paused. So, you know, you know, talking out of the other side of your faith, maybe that's a Jersey expression. But we've, we've both said the Fed didn't do anything to break inflation. I don't think they did. And you've made the comment in the past that maybe the Fed raising rates is keeping inflation high, certainly on the core side when you have rents still going up, different things. I mean, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the, the, the idea there is, I, listen, I thought that the Fed successfully slowed down uh, the housing market. Right, they it came to a screeching halt. Great, so they I would say they caused you know that business to slow down, but the result of that has not been uh, lower inflation. I think the result of that has been uh, housing prices have been uh, remained high, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are stuck in an amazing mortgage rate, right? And we we've done a show where we talked about uh, you know people, individuals mortgage individual mortgage rates. And it's hard, you get a lot less house these days when you're going to move because you're, you know, the mortgage rate is 7% compared to the three or under that you currently have. And so what's that mean? It means that people are, you know, not going to, inventory is going to dry up and prices are going to go up. And it means that people that are buying real estate property to rent now have a higher mortgage and they're going to charge more. So while I think they successfully slowed down the the housing market, I think they unsuccessfully caused more inflation in that sector. I'm going to take it a step further. I don't think this is just a misunderstanding of where the inflation came from. And it's also a misunderstanding that what happens when the Fed does quantitative easing. And when you think about real broadly, what can happen? Well, the Fed can, can raise your lower rates. They can quantitative ease, which basically means they go out and they buy a bunch of bonds. You can have the government spend more money. The government always is spending more money. Or you can have the government literally shipping barrels of money, uh, not real barrels, but checks. And in, in the case of the government spending more money, the government is so inefficient that when they spend more money, a lot of it is wasted. 
It's just a fact, okay? Get over it. It's just the way things are. And then you could have the Fed. The Fed could buy bonds. But think about what happens when, when a bond gets, you know, they, they create money and they buy uh, treasury bonds to put on their balance sheet through a bank. The bank had a treasury bond and now they have cash. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily increase the money supply or it stays in the banks. Maybe the banks just buy more, more treasuries. But when you actually send physical money, i.e. checks out to people, what happens there is that is actually put into the economy. And that's why, you know, when you look at what the Fed does and what the government spending more, the government wastes a ton of money. People are much better off spending it. So I think it's just a misunderstanding. And the Fed not, you know, actually reducing their balance sheet or the Fed raising rates, it had nothing to do with it. Jay, what happened this time was so clear to me that at the very point when you have supply side problems, you throw a bunch of money at the problem, which is what the government did and to some extent the Fed did. And it's basically like, here, here's a gas can. I'm going to pour it in my fireplace while the fire is going. That's exactly what happened. None of these, these Fed increases are not doing anything. Like if you actually want to, the drop in inflation is, the, the whole supply side corrected itself. But anyway, Jay, and, and I, I can, I want to stop there because I want you to comment on that, but I have more thoughts as well. Okay. So th- look, agreed on the gasoline analogy, uh, absolutely. In the money supply discussion, I'll throw a scenario at you. Let's say um, uh, you're the, you're the economic scenario where you need your credit cards right? And you need credit. I do think in this scenario, they, um, let's, so let's say you, you've spent your checks that you got from the government and you're sitting there going, okay, well, look, in order for me to, you know, do what I'm doing and I've created this habit of travel now and whatever it is, uh, cause I had money and now I don't, and you're using a credit card. I do think credit card rates will eventually, uh, hit the consumer. Right. I do think that someone that's, you know, those folks at some point will realize that, like, I just have to stop the discretionary spending. But I'm not sure we've hit that point yet. But I think you'll first see it in the people that actually, you know, rely on credit for their day to day or their month to month budget. And I do think that will cause some level of slowdown. Outside of that, I'm with you, Derek. Like, the restriction of the Fed hasn't really stopped spending. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and expansion in this country. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, cause the availability of credit, things like that. And, and obviously the banks, the way their balance sheets work and the hold to maturity, all that stuff we, that's been talked about. I don't want to talk about it. I'm tired of it. Everybody knows what's going on there. I will say that the fed creating or the fed doing quantitative easing does not necessarily, it might increase the money supply. But without velocity of money going up, you don't have inflation. Like, all right, Jay, here, here's a little quantitative theory of, of uh, money, monetary quantitative theory. I don't remember which one it is. All right, let's hear it. Yeah, like the, your nominal GDP, so not inflation-adjusted GDP. If, if you want to do your, your nominal GDP, it's basically the money supply times the velocity of money. So your money supply can double but if your velocity gets cut in half, you don't have any growth in nominal GDP. So 
What's happened recently is, I mean, definitely velocity is is up a little bit. It had been trending down for years and years and years. Define velocity, right? So velocity is how many times the same dollar gets spent yeah, and circulated, like, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to use a dollar. Yeah, We're going to pretend right? that pizza in New York is a dollar and a newspaper is a dollar. So I go in, I buy a, news, a slice of pizza for a dollar. You remember those days. And the pizza owner says, I'm going to take that same dollar and I'm going to go buy the the Sunday New York Post, the New York Times for a dollar. And then the newspaper stand guy says, I'm going to take that same dollar and I'm going to go buy a, a Snapple iced tea. Why Snapple iced tea? It's what came into my mind because I'm thinking about you know New York in the 90s. You think about walking on Fifth Avenue. I got you. Keep That's going. right. So that same dollar circulated three times. But if all the, what that happened was I bought the slice of pizza for a dollar and that money just sat in that register. So the velocity of money is one versus three. And so my point is that when you have, you need velocity to really go up. Like velocity, the calculation is basically your your nominal GDP divided by the money supply. That is your velocity. But to bring this back to what I was talking about earlier, if you, I mean, let's put it this way. What they literally did was they sent money out. Imagine there's a hundred people in line with a hundred dollars in their pocket. And they're waiting and they're going to buy, they want to buy, you know, there's 70 TVs, 90 TD TVs available, whatever, at $100 each. So somebody's going to be willing to spend a little bit more than $100. But then if you all of a sudden send money out and now there's a thousand people in line with a hundred bucks in their pocket for those same 90 TVs, well, now the price of those TVs is going to go up because you just threw a bunch of money at it. So the the monetary basically it's it's your anyway i don't want to get too far into it but it's like this is all textbook stuff and it's like when you look at what happened in the economy the fed didn't do any of this it was just a factor of you threw money into the economy you had limited number of widgets and people were willing to pay more for the it's it's price times quantity and the quantity went down and the price went up. It's like, I don't know what else you want me to tell you, Jay. So without going into like a three-hour dissertation on quantitary monetary theory, I'm just saying the Fed didn't do any of this. I'm, I'm, they didn't. And the Fed increase in their balance sheet isn't necessarily inflationary. It's why for 10 years people are like, inflation's coming, inflation's coming. No, it never came. Never came. So It didn't, it didn't come until, until supply dried up. That's right. And you and then you threw a bunch of money. You, well, yeah, we threw a bunch of money out there and you dried up supply. You did there's your gasoline analogy, right? So in your TV analogy, let's say there's half the amount of TVs that there normally is and people are just used to buying their TVs, right? Well, look, they'll pay up. Hey, good thing I have more money in my pocket. I can go pay up. And that, you know, that combo did it. And so when we talk about the reduction, like CPI came out this week, PPI came out this week. I guess last week by the time people hear this, and you know, the headline number was 10.1 and the core was 0.4. So it looks like, you know, inflation is trending down, right? I mean, it is when you look at the core month over month over the last year, it's been trending down. But to your point, I'm not sure there has been any real impact of what the Fed has done to do that, right? Have they, like what caused the inflation is not what they're undoing by raising rates. I think, is that another way to say that? I don't think it is, at least. No, I think it's right. And the, and if you really want to look at, if you wanted to bring inflation down faster, you would look at the fiscal side. You would look at what 
politicians do. And they would, they would have people start paying back their loans. And I don't want to get into that discussion, but uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, people would have to start paying back their loans. They've been deferred for a couple of years. There's probably other government programs that are still in place. I mean, I see commercials online. I don't know if it's a scam or not. They're like, get your, get your free cash from the government, you know, for having employees during the last couple of years. So there's other things that they could do. They could pull back, they could pull back money there. But anyway, it's just, I think, you know, it always goes back to when all you have is a hammer, everything you see is a nail and the fed, the only thing they can do to fix any problem. And they feel like they have to do something is they just have to, now they've definitely, they haven't crashed the real estate market, but there's no supply. I mean, there's, there's really no supply there. I don't know. So we'll, we'll see Jay. Anything else on that? Uh, no, I think you and I are on the, unfortunately on the same page. We didn't have great, you know, back and forth on this one, but I'm hoping we can get some opposite side discussion. By the way, the last time we had an opposite side discussion on the cost of used cars, the me- I got emails and everybody paid more than what you thought they should pay. I got like 50,000 a car. Oh yeah. I, re- I read those emails on air last week, Jay, where you were gone. You did? Uh, yeah, I, I, used, I used first names, you know, and we don't have permission for the last yeah. names, but uh, yeah, no, that, that was great. So send emails. We like emails. Jay, yeah, this right, is something. Let's talk about the next topic. Yeah. This is, we were talking in, uh, in this week and this is all a market multiple story. What do I mean by that? Earnings have not gone up much year over year. They're not expected to. And so in 2022, it was all about multiple decline. And that's just a fancy way for saying how many times expected forward earnings are people willing to pay for the market? Because earnings didn't, earnings went up in uh, 2022, but the multiple went down. Now, Jay, everyone's willing to pay whatever they want. NVIDIA's going to the moon. Who knows where it's going? And, but the Fed is still has been raising rates. And you asked me, when have we ever seen multiples expand, so the forward PE multiple expand, at the same time the Fed was still in a rate hiking cycle? And I said, it's very easy to me. It's 1995. And I've, Jay, I mean, you and I talked about this before. I did a whole episode where I said, is this 1994 all over again? 94, the Fed was raising rates. They continued to raise rates in 95. And then the market was flat in 94, in large part because earnings grew about 30%. We didn't have 30% earnings growth in, in 2022. The market takes off in 95 while the Fed was still raising. And of course, the, the market wound up going to you know sky high, tech boom, all that stuff. So Jay, I think one could take, and who knows, this is why we buy and we hedge, we never know, uh, but it's like, to me, could we be setting up for a 94, 95 scenario where this thing is just going to keep going because the multiple is going to expand and people are like, I'm good. So, but you don't think this is, you don't think 95 has as much significance as I do here. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I hope so. I like the 94, 95 story. Uh, you and to your credit, you have been definitely talking about 94, 95 for nine months at least, right? So I love it when you're ahead of the curve, Derek. It's not the first time, so great job on that. And so I hope I hope that's the case. I still think that um, 
you know, I'd like to look at things, and it would be great if I did a little research on this, but look at things like the yield of the S&P versus the 10-year yield, right? When you look at things like that, and you kind of look at, you know, what the alternatives are that exist to being in the stock market, there truly is an alternative now. I know right now, I think as we're sitting here, the S&P is up uh, close to 10% for this year alone, uh, uh, that having a 5% treasury in your portfolio may not look so great, but a few months ago, it did, right? It seemed like the biggest no-brainer in the history of the planet, for me to quote some guy that does uh, advertising on uh, on my radio. But it just, it seemed obvious, like, just take the safe road. And now it may seem like, oh, I'm falling behind. And on a real basis, I still think stocks are the way to go. You know that. It, again, that's why we don't time the market. We invest and we hedge. Uh, all of those wonderful things. But when I think about what's happening right now, I just think that there's too many alternatives, safer, significantly safer and less volatile alternatives uh, available in the marketplace today than to take on more risk uh, and, and to see this expanding uh, multiple, right? So paying up for stocks right now, I'll simplify what I was saying, paying up for stocks right now, seems like we've probably seen, to me, a, a good chunk of that expansion, and I don't see the massive expansion that you saw uh, that you're referencing for the 95 period because you have this other alternative. And I know in your example, rates were also going up, but I think there's a little bit of a different scenario today in the bond market than from then. And the change, the rate of change in interest rates, it also means it's a little more significant. So there you go. I don't think, listen, I can't argue with the fact that the expansion, uh, the multiple is expanded. Clearly it has. And I do think earnings are going to go up. I'm with that. I just don't think it's going to be the runaway expansion that we saw in 95 through 99. Give me some numbers here. I'm looking at the the one-year treasury bill. December 29, 1995, it's about 5.2% was the yield. The start of the year, it started at uh, over 7%. Now, the Fed that year, they were raising rates up through, I think, May. And then they... They did their first cut. It was either September, October, or somewhere around there. So, and we know that typically bonds sort of give a, f- a forward amount uh, of guidance, let's say, to the market by what the market is doing in, in bonds. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just like when you think about like the Fed. This is a quote I think somebody on CNBC said: "The Fed keeps going until they break something." In 1994, Orange County went bankrupt. Partly because they were they were funding long term bond purchases with with shorting short term bonds yields, and when yields went up, the whole thing went under. Um, I don't know, Jay. I mean, I, the other thing that feels a little bit different, uh, but at the same time, is the idea of okay. To I mean, is this a new technology now with with artificial intelligence? Is it being overvalued compared to the internet in the late 90s that really caused a lot of this this run up in the PE forwards, right? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's another thing too. Are people too optimistic about what AI can do? Yeah. Yeah is the answer. Um, and, and it's because I don't I don't know the uh, like where's all the revenue coming from, right? So when you look at who's participating. It's the infrastructure. It's the using your analogy 
It's Levi's in the gold rush, right? It's selling picks and shovels. Those are going up. Great, because somebody has to provide chips to so that AI works as, as efficiently as possible. Great. I understand that. But companies that make money off of AI have it. It's almost the opposite of the internet boom in a way where all of a sudden people were betting on the companies that were profiting from the internet, like Amazon, like Yahoo, like, uh, you know, the, 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 the big name, actually many of them that if I rattled off their names don't exist anymore, but let's just, just Amazon still exists. So that's a good example. So uh, it wasn't until later that the infrastructure started playing, right? The Junipers, the JDS Uniphase, and then even like FedEx, right? The transports that then did the catch up from that kind of change and global change. When I, when I think about where the revenue is going to come from, from AI, it's productivity, right? Everybody, everybody's company will be a little more productive, right? That to me doesn't spur this huge ongoing wave. I still think the infrastructure piece, right? The chip makers and the, you know, Google and Microsoft of the world that have actually the AI, great. They're going to do fine. They're going to be able to, I guess, sell the services, right? And then mine that data, right? Uh, but outside of that, I don't see it like an internet boom where it's the companies that benefit from the the first beneficiaries of it are leading the pack and the, the infrastructure is behind. Here it seems infrastructure is leading and we haven't figured out how the revenue is really going to flow to the bottom line of companies. So that's why I think it's different. Um but I'm not betting against NVIDIA. Don't get me wrong there. I think it's great. But I just don't see it as this thing that pulls up the entire market. This isn't the railroads of the, you know, the AP 1800s. This, I don't think it's the Internet. I still think it's great. I'm not against it. I just don't think it's going to pull everything up. Yeah, I mean, it's it, in economics, it, we call it sort of the, the production possibilities curve. And that's a fancy way for saying if all you had was a horse and carriage and you need to ship goods, it's the productivity there or the, the, the ability to produce things and sell things is sort of constrained. But all of a sudden, you, you know, the railroads, you can load stuff up and send it all over the country. That's a huge gain. And I think what you're saying is where are the really huge gains going to come in AI? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you and I have always said like individual stocks are really difficult to pick. I could tell you, you know, if you like NVIDIA, buy it. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Like, I don't care. I would say, you know, it's uh, and and if you own the market, you have these stocks in there. Like Nvidia is in there, uh, all the a bunch of these stocks are in there as well. So, I don't know. It's there. It's always interesting though, Jay. That like, let's say the market's down twenty percent. Investors and I think some advisors and I think some institutions, their inclination is to sell their stocks. You know, get me out. I don't want to take any more pain. And then when the market's up 20%, people are like, oh, I don't want to miss out. I want to add more. It's just classic. It's always the opposite, right? It is. It is. It is. Uh, and well, that's that's an emotional reaction. And you know what we talk about when it comes to investing in emotions, right? It's, you know, they, they really shouldn't mix. You got to figure out a way to keep those under wrap and be, you know, diligent and measured in the way that you make decisions. I like to say this one, right? Have you ever made a decision and said to yourself afterwards, gosh, I wish I was more emotional when I made that decision. <laughs> that rarely happened and probably never in finance. So yeah, keep that under control, right? Keep the, uh, you know, the FOMO under control, keep the optimism in check and 
you know, we like to tell people it's okay to exercise. Like you said, you want to own some NVIDIA because you think it's got another 100 points in it or 500 points. It's going to 1,000. Okay, then have some exposure to NVIDIA. I get it. It's okay. But that's a different bucket than your overall growth of what you're trying to do when you're building wealth long term. Right. So enjoy those. We love trading. Those are fun to do. But uh, it's not the way we do our whole portfolios, of course. Right. I mean, the, the bull case is that, yes, the artificial intelligence changes everything. The bull case is people are going to be willing to speculate and pay up and have a much higher price to forward earnings ratio. How many times forward earnings are you going to? Uh, the other bull case says, well, while the Fed may not lower rates, at least if they stop raising them, it's like, okay, let's just hang out here. That's good. Some of the bear cases I've seen are, this is a really good rally, but not. it's all driven by like less than 5% of the companies. So this is from, oh, who, who put this out? So this is not my work. I, I saw this on Twitter, but it, it's titled the, uh, uh, oh, Beat the Bench. Maybe that's what, what the, the, the newsletter, I would, I'll have to go back and look, but the index and nobody else. And what they did was they put a chart out and they said the S&P 500 future returns have been subpar when less than 5% of its components make a 52-week high with the index. So let me just simplify that. Yeah, say, it, say it again. Like give the two, the two pieces that it's, it's, it's putting together. Yeah. When less than 5% of components make a 52-week high, at the same time, the market is making a 52-week high. All right, that's how I'll rephrase it. So the market wakes, makes a one-year high, 52 weeks, but only 5% of the members of the, of the S&P 500 also made 52-week highs, which means 95% of the, the index components are not. So really, Jay, this is sort of a, the breadth is not really good. We're not seeing broad-based uh, 52-week highs here. And what this goes on to to look at is some different periods where, um, well, yeah, so 612, uh, 23, the high was 43.40 and percentage of new highs was less than 5%, but it is a 52-week high, Jay. So Yeah, that's why you're bringing this up. Like, by the way, I don't know if everybody knows, the S&P is at a 52-week high, right? We made that on, uh, like you said here, on 612. It made a new high. Now, it's not an all-time high, but it is a one-year high. And I think that's that's important. Some people may not know that. This has not been a bad 12-month period if you look at today, right? So, sorry. So, that's the first reason why I think you're bringing this up. Uh, and then the, con- the concentration is an interesting characteristic of this new high that we have. Fair to say? Yeah. No, I think that's right. And then they go back to, you know, so 2023, there's stuff in 21, 20, you know, we're not going to read all these. This goes back to 1990. So I don't know what the data would be before then. But the point is like, okay, when the market makes a new all-time high, what is the next, what is the return over the next month, the next three months, the next six and 12 months? And, you know, I, I think the point of this person who, who put together this, this data was that there a lot of times, uh, you know, it's a little bit mixed, but generally the market's up. You've had, you know, 2000, and I'm going to talk about 2000 more in depth with you in a second, 
But 2000 was where you had, you know, over 20% declines over the next 12 months. In 20, you know, December of 20, uh, it was up 28% the next 12 months. So, and interestingly enough, Jay, the best numbers on this whole thing were 1995. I'm just saying, just saying, I, I have no idea. <laughs> you jumped right to it. So the uh, let's let's go through kind of of all these periods on this list. Uh, there's what here, maybe 30 different times that they call out between 1990 and now. The average, yeah, right. yeah, the average return over the next month. So if you take all these different periods, and it's a it's a fairly uh, uh, you know, wide mix. The average over the next month is you know a negative 0.7. So if we were to do the average from when we made this new high on June 12th, you go to you know I guess I'm going to assume calendar month. You go to July 12th. You we should expect a 0.7 percent average pullback because of this uh, circumstance. You go three months out, it's a plus one. That's good. So. You know, when this occurs, the three-month average is plus one. When this occurs, the six-month average is plus 2.3, and the one-year average is plus 4.3. Now, I think from the, the work that you and I have done in different strategies, those numbers are – the one month is uh, below average, right? On average, the market is actually up, you know, uh, you know usually about 1%, just under 1% over a one-month period. This is negative. Uh, three months, you and I both know the average is more like two and a half, two point eight percent, and this is only one percent. So, just using averages that you and I know on the S and P, when this circumstance occurs, it has been below average, generally speaking. And there's definitely some interesting periods that we could look at here, right? You've got the uh, the pandemic 2020 period when this occurred, and a few breakout stocks led the way. The next year was was strong, right? 30, 28%. We know that the market was very strong uh, uh, after that period, right? Because 2021 was a monster. Uh, when you could look at some other bad periods. Oh, actually, what's another good period? Well, the only other really good, strong period is your 95. So with the exception of 2020, you've got tw- 1995 that those two periods are the ones that pull up. The rest of these numbers are negative or single digits one year later. So this is from the bear side of things, uh, an interesting uh, interesting argument, unless they've adopted your 95 similarity theory. Yeah, this is interesting. I don't know how, I don't know what anybody would do with this, certainly, but I think the point is that, you know, a lot of people, the bear side are saying, wait a second, this is a great rally. We've come too far too fast. And it's not really broad participation. So if you have these these five percent of companies, which in the S and P is five percent of you know twenty five companies, right? Um, if they kind of pull back and the rest of the market doesn't come up, then you would expect the market not to do very well. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? You know, if we knew, we'd we'd have other you know other powers, right? But. Well, let's talk about 2000 for a minute because it sounded like you wanted to dig into that because let's remember what happened in 2000. Yeah, and I'll I'll frame this. Let me frame this, but I want you to kind of take the lead on this. And so I said to you off air before we were coming on, where did this whole once we're 20% above a bear market uh, low, we are in a new bull market come from? Like, uh, why? That doesn't make any sense to me. And there's, there's different ways to look at, 
you sort of know what a bull market is after it's like, I'll tell you where the bull market is after a bull market's happened. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. One is you, you can look at the trough low of a bear market and you say, okay, once we know we've troughed, that's when the start of the new one, you could wait a little bit. There's also the cyclical thing where you say, well, we're still not above the old all-time high. And until you can be up money from that all-time high, like until we break that, we're not in a new cyclical bull market. Um, and there seems to be this thought, you know, Jay, CNBC, a couple of people said, you know, it's all clear because we're, we're 20% off the, the bear market low. And that assumes that that was the low. But Jay, 2000 to 2002, I feel like we're getting old and that not a lot of people remember this period. There was some stuff that happened there that sort of, uh, you know, just go into it a little bit, Jay. Yeah, and I, and I even I didn't remember all of this. So the the point that Derek is making is that you know you can have significant rebounds and them not be an indicator of a broad based reversal higher. So in a, in a declining market like we had last year, uh, we did have a couple bounces of like fifteen percent, yet the market continued to press lower, which is why, you know, gave investors a lot of angst, right? The the market timers just were on the, even the bears were on the wrong side of that the whole time. So um, when you look at 2000 through 2002, which we remember, what, internet.com bomb, right? The, the, that whole reversal, there were, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times on the NASDAQ where it rebounded 20% or more. And actually, a couple times it rebounded 50% or more, but it did not signal the bottom of the move. That's what Derek wants us to recognize here, right? Where you've got this downtrend and you do have these bear market rallies. There's a term for these. Um, even when you look at the S&P during that same time period, there's one, two, three, four times that the market rallied 20% or more during that overall decline. You had 20% rebounds and four of those you know, did not indicate that the bear market was over. So I think that's the point that Derek wants us to hit home on. Uh, I and I'm I'm now that I said the data, Derek, I'll give you a chance to comment, and then I'll probably comment why I think you're off base on this. Yeah, not and by the I'm way, <laughs> yeah, and uh, tip of the cap to uh, John Husband uh, had put this out on Twitter. So I didn't create this this graph that we're looking at, um, but. Yeah. I mean, I think the point is, and it always goes back to, if you actually know that the, that low was the bear market low, then of course you can say, well, that was the low. But you don't really know if it's the low until enough time has passed. And I think the thing, you know, that Husband points out here in this graph is, you know, I'll just use March of 2001. March of 2001, and I remember this, I was trading, I was on a trade desk. It would be very easy to say that was the bottom. If you covered up the graph and you couldn't see the rest of it, you'd say, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we rallied up 21%. We're in a new bull market. And then by September of 01, we make a new low. I mean, a new lowest low. We actually pierced the low prior to that. And then you rally up 24% again. You're like, okay, now we're good. Like you, you have no idea until post de facto, can I, is that a word? Like whether or not that was a bear market low. So the point of this is to me, 
Number one is I don't know where this whole, once you rally up 20% off, off a quote unquote bear market low, you're in a new bull market. Like if you look at this, you're like, okay, we're in a bull market. Now we're in a bear market. Now we're in a bull market. Now we're in a bear market. Like, come on, this doesn't make any sense to me. I, well, I don't I don't feel the need to put a label on it. And uh, so I'm, I'm fine with not calling what we're in right now a bull market if you don't want to. Um, but I do think, so there's two things that I'll comment on this. I think, um, you know, when we were talking about the one year later after the concentration, 2020 ends up being, you know, the one year later after March of 2020, you know, kind of bringing back the other conversation for a second, ends up being, you know, some of the worst data points on here, right? Minus 23%, minus 20% after March of 2020. So there's a lot of bad data points there. Um, you brought up the similarity of AI and the internet. Maybe that's what happens after if the AI rally reverses. There's so many similarities in this conversation. But when I think about the whole 20% signals the bottom, uh, I agree with you. That clearly is not the case. Uh, 2020 is a great example of that. However, those rallies that occurred, Derek, right, those 20% rallies, we're in fairly short periods of time, and we never got, even in the short term, a set of higher highs and higher lows. So even though these rallies occurred of 20%, they didn't surpass the previous highs of just a month or two months before them. Do you know what I mean? So you were clearly in a downtrend in all of this. And I would argue, if you were to cover up the left side of the chart in March of 2020, uh, 2001, I would say it, it's not clear that the decline is over. You didn't create, uh, 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 you didn't stop the trend of a lower high and then stop the trend of a lower low. That, what we're going through right now, Derek, is very different than 2020 and 2022. And I don't know if you're trying to make the comparison between them, but we have been since October in an uptrend of higher highs and higher lows in the S&P. The NASDAQ is, uh, it, it took a little longer for it to get there. It had to start in January. And that thing is a weird parabolic chart, which, you know, is, is just unique of its own. We know that right now. But I do not think this is anything like those bear market rallies of 2000, 2002. Just doesn't feel that way. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think there's this thing in technical analysis too. It's time matters. And when you stretch moves out over longer periods of time, the bases you build are stronger. The, the moves are, have more conviction when you have these very short-term things. And I think you're right. Uh, if I pull up a chart of the S&P and I'm like, okay, you know, the, the market rallied from 3674 June 17th of 2022. So that was last year all the way up to 4280.15 by August. But that August high was lower than the high in April. It was lower than the high in December, January, you know, December of 21. So I think that's right. And as we, you know, as a technician, the market now, um, you know, overhead supply is sort of resistance and there's you know, you have some areas now. You have, you know, 45, 45 back in April of 22. This is not how we trade, Jay. I mean, we invest long-term. We buy the markets. We hedge. And it's the whole idea is for investors. Like, you shouldn't get emotional. You shouldn't say, when the market's down 20%, get me out. 
And the same thing, you should already be in. And a lot of people probably are getting in now. But I think your point's well taken, Jay. It's uh, That chart does look a lot different. And time matters there, for sure. Time matters. Yeah. And listen, I, I you know, we always talk about, you know, our, our process a little bit about how we buy and we hedge. And uh, we always like to stay invested, but protected. You know, there is a little bit of... Um, uh, activity that is associated with being hedged, right? You have to do something with your hedges from time to time and you have to know when to reset. And so, you know, there are things when we will watch the market move and there are, you know, price points within, uh, uh, within the market where we may decide like, hey, our options have changed and the prices have moved to, to a level where it's time to rehedge or it's time to take advantage and cash in on your hedge. You know, part of the point about being hedged is to cash in on the hedge when you can, right? Uh, whether you're, you know, reinvesting avoided losses or just taking advantage of the profits on a, on a hedge. It's like insurance, right? You have insurance for a reason. If you have car insurance and you have an accident, you're going to use the insurance. You're not going to say, oh, I'll save it for next time. It doesn't work that way. So I just, I thought it'd be, you know, let you know, like why we still maybe just to say this out loud, why we still watch the movement in the markets and the pricing of our option strategies is because there are things that you have to do when you're running a hedged portfolio. Right. You're not always hedged. Right. Uh, sorry, you're not always hedged the same way. Uh, your hedges as the market moves up become less and less valuable because they're farther and farther away. They protect less and less. And so you have to kind of regularly rehedge and reengage. And there's probably a whole I shouldn't say, oh, there's probably multiple shows that we could do about the concept of rehedging. But I just thought I'd bring it up because we we still, even though we always say stay invested and stay ahead, it still matters what the market does for us. And it still matters the way we actually manage those portfolios. I mean, in general, we want the markets to go up. We do. That's what we want for our clients. We want it for the advisors who use, who use our strategies. And it's because you want it to go up. And I think this has been a little bit of a stealth rally. I know it sounds strange to say, but sometimes when I talk to people and I say, you know, you realize the market's at a 52-week high. Really? You know, they still assume it's down. Like, it's it's awful. I'm like, no, no, no. It's, the, the market's higher than it was the day the Fed did their first interest rate hike. So, I mean, congratulations, pal. Like, what, what do you want me to say? All right, Jay. There you go. Let's, <laughs> let's blow uh, it up. Uh, Enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Jay. Not you, Jay. Jay Powell. So I, I did get a note from uh, our friend Michael, the uh, listener of the show. He said uh, he watched uh, Brockmire a couple episodes. He watched it with uh, someone in the family. Uh, he laughed his head off. Uh, she thought it was gross and over the top. He said, you know, let Jay know it'd be good to give a little, you know, like a, a rating or a little heads up if, if one of your recommendations. So I give a maturity update. Like I thought I did. I thought I kind of insinuated like that, uh, uh, Michael, that the that this was a little lowbrow humor, but I definitely didn't emphasize it. I'm glad he enjoyed it. I think the show's hilarious. And my wife does not, by the way. <laughs> Jay, do you have anything this week? Anything you've, uh, I know you you did some travel. Do you watch anything cool on the plane? I've been watching a show called Citadel on uh, on Netflix. Kind of a interesting spy show with kind of twists and turns. I'm not all the way through it, but it definitely has my interest. And then for the Trekkies out there, I'm sure you know, the new season of Strange New Worlds uh, came out this past week. So I'm watching that as well. 
I started watching the Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix. And it was one of those things I put it on and I'm like, oh, let me check it out for a minute. And 20 minutes had passed and I was still watching it. So I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know how many episodes there are, if it was just one and done, but uh, that, that caught my interest a little bit. Jay, uh, did you wind up going to a Florida Panther game? Uh, you know, your favorite sport, hockey? I don't... Um... Did the, I don't remember that we had a hockey team in Florida, so I, I didn't make any of the games. <laughs> the team was in the Stanley Cup. Not it's in your team. Yeah, you there's the team on the east side of Florida, which is the Florida Panthers. They play in Sunrise. Yeah, I'm on the east side of Florida. Yeah, I'm on that yeah, side. Yeah, so in Sunrise, Florida. Yeah, so they uh, they lost the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, four games to one. What always fascinates me, though, about hockey is that. Once the series is over, you actually find out the injuries. And Florida had apparently four guys playing who need shoulder surgery. Another guy played for 20 games with a broken foot and a torn oblique. And one of their stars, Matthew Kachuk, who didn't play in the final game, the game before, people had to tie his skates and put his uniform on for him because he was playing with a broken sternum. So hockey players are unbelievable how they play through stuff. So yeah, no, they really are. I know I, I know I tease, but wow, what a, what a sport I do. Unfortunately, I think it's underrated in our country, right? It's uh, it doesn't make it to the, the, the football, basketball, baseball level, but I mean, yeah, I know hockey players and it is, it's a, it's a, it's a brutal physical game. I feel like the NF, I mean, NFL players, I feel like sometimes they don't play through stuff. Uh, but you know, maybe that's the smarter thing. Maybe, maybe they're smarter than NHL players. I don't know, but, uh, you know what it is though? It just, it doesn't translate. So with HDTV, it definitely is much, much better to watch hockey on TV, but there's nothing like being in the arena and, and watching it live. So anyway, that's, uh, no more hockey. I should go to a game. game. You should suggest that for me. Really? I don't know why you didn't push. I kind of have been doing that. All right, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, all right. Derek. Good to have you back on the program, and uh, we'll we'll let you know if that was a a bear market rally or a bull new bull market. We'll let you know in about a year. How's that, Jay? Fair enough. That's, we should know by then. I think we should. All right, Jay. Thanks for coming on again. Everyone else, we'll see you next week. Take care.